The Gospel of the Lord Jesus according to St. Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you can clap for him reading through that. <laughs> when a particular prisoner has been bad, we uh, assign him a genealogy to, uh, to read. You know, some of the most illuminating portions of Scripture on the surface appear to be the most boring. And this genealogy is uh, no exception. At first reading, you think Matthew just needs a better editor, doesn't he know? You have to catch the audience in the first 30 seconds. Clearly he doesn't. Um, but what you find when you take a closer look is that Matthew is teaching doctrine through this genealogy. And specifically, he teaches three very important doctrines in these long list of names. If you're interested in digging deeper, uh, F.D. Bruner's wonderful commentary on Matthew has a nice section on this. Well, first of all, Matthew's genealogy teaches a doctrine of God's sovereignty. You know, he begins, he, he's writing for a Jewish audience and he wants to say that Jesus is Jewish, that he's a descendant of David, he's a descendant of Abraham and comes through the line of Joseph and so he walks all the way through. But then he ends, you probably caught this, he says, therefore all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from the Babylonian captivity 14, and from Babylonian captivity to the coming of Christ 14. 
And so he organizes his material in a way to show that Jesus is both the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and the climax of the entire Old Testament story. And he uses a 3 times 14 format to summarize all the history of Israel on the way to Jesus. The first 14 generations take us from Abraham to David. That's the rise of Israel. The next 14 generations describe the fall of Israel. They take us from the heights of King Solomon to the depths of exile. The last 14 generations are hopeful again. They move from the dark days of exile all the way to Christ. And he puts all of this into kind of a nice teaching package that's easily memorable. And of course, people often memorize this. And he does it to teach a theological point. He is trying to say that the God of Israel works through all these different seasons in an orderly way to bring God's Savior to the world. And as we'll see in a moment, you're probably recognized there is so much sin and dysfunction in this family tree. There are broken promises, there's betrayals, there's murders, there's adultery, there's deception. Uh, many of the characters lived in times of great chaos. Many of them were not particularly devout or faithful. But Matthew organizes his genealogy in these three groups of 14 to show us that despite all of this, God is at work bringing his purposes through the world. You know, when you think about it, this really is what faith is all about. Um, there's this biography of C.S. Lewis, the, the great apologist, and he, he talks about uh, being a, an atheist and thinking a lot about God and getting on a bus one day. He'd been really wrestling with it, and he said, by the time I got off the bus, I was a theist. And what he meant was is that he had moved from a belief that life was random and chaos to a belief that there was a larger story and that God was working in and through the chaos. And really that, I think, is what we mean by faith. That's the first movement. Somebody was sharing with me uh, earlier, they'd been here at the Knives Out uh, Christmas party yesterday, and <laughs> I, I, I think they were one of the ones that spilled some blood. And they said, you know, if you go up and you look, you will see <laughs> tape <laughs> and tears and uh, all these things that didn't quite work out. But when you step further away, you just see the picture. And the longer you look at the picture, the clearer the story becomes. Amen. I think that's what faith is. You know, if it, as, I, as I just think about the life of faith, um, it really is like that. It's just filled with tape and mistakes and a little bit of blood. But 
when you step back, and I guess this, there's like three things about getting older that are good. Um, senior coffee, that's one. Another one is that you have the perspective to look back and say, oh my gosh, there's so much tape, but I see what he's doing. That's what Matthew's trying to say with this beautiful genealogy. Matthew's genealogy gives us also a, a doctrine of Scripture. and We can learn about Scripture and how it works from the way the Apostle Matthew uses Scripture. We know Matthew believes Scripture is God's Word, that he believes it's inspired, authoritative. For example, in his Gospel, Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I say until heaven and earth passes away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished so we might say that Matthew has a high view of scripture he reveres scripture as God's inspired word but he feels perfect freedom to reshape his historical material so that it fits the 3 times 14 format. See, if you go back through the Old Testament and you trace the ancestry of Jesus and you write it all down on a sheet of paper, it doesn't all fall into three groups of 14. All the names are there, but Matthew edited out certain names because he really liked the 14 idea. In particular, in verse 8, he skips over three generations, four chapters of Second Chronicles, and drops as Ahaza, Joash, and Amaziah, and then later Jehoiakim, because he wants to get the list down to 14. Now Matthew knows his audience can read. He knows they can check his list of kings with the Old Testament lists. He's not trying to pull a fast one on us. He's simplifying the chronology to make a point. The sovereign God of Israel is at work through all history saving the world. Now, here's why I point this out. Sometimes critics will say, well, see, the Bible is, is full of errors. The gospel writers' historical accounts are not accurate. We can't trust the Bible. But that is to impose our understanding of historical writing onto the biblical authors. This is why this matters so much, um, at least to me. Scripture is so important to our faith, to knowing God. Scripture is how God reveals himself to us. And so if I come to a point in my journey... And I have, and many of you have, where I begin to question Scripture or doubt whether it really is God's Word, it really can make it difficult for my faith journey. And I'm not saying this because I read it in a book. I'm saying it because it's happened to me in the 50 years that I've been, or 47 years I've been a Christian. And I remember going to college, many of you have had this experience, and you take the classes, and they delight in showing all the problems and all this stuff. And I remember thinking, 
I've really got a problem here. And so the first way I was taught to deal with it in the first seminary I went to was a method whereby you, you had to harmonize or reconcile anything that looked like a contradiction or a difference. And you know, you, if you read the Bible thoughtfully, you're going to see these things. I mean, you can't not. Um, some Gospels say there's two angels at the resurrection. Some say there's one. Uh, read Luke's genealogy. It's not the same as Matthew's. Parts of it are. Parts of it are different. The history of Israel in First and Second Chronicles differs in places from the history as written in First and Second Samuel. The account of creation in Genesis 1 has a different focus than the account of creation in Genesis 2. So when I started to see these things, I felt like, oh my gosh, there are errors in the Bible. I can't trust the Bible. And so I was taught to kind of force these things to reconcile. And that worked for about, about five years. And then I began to feel like, you know, I just feel like I'm forcing this here. This doesn't seem to work. And in the mid-90s, I, I had the privilege of doing a, a doctor of ministry at Gordon-Conwell. And I was introduced to some other faithful students of Scripture who had a very high view of Scripture, who challenged my view that every discrepancy had to be reconciled. And these writers said that the need for historical precision and accuracy comes from modernity, and would have been foreign to the biblical authors. And that Matthew was drawing from ancient inspired traditions which he firmly believed in. Matthew believed this is true to describe what God was doing in Jesus. He wasn't writing a history textbook. So does it bother me that there's two angels in one gospel and one in the other? No. To me, the fact that you have four different sources from different oral traditions that all agree that this man came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose on the third day. You know, I've got a, two degrees in history, one from the University of Tennessee. If you have sources like that, you know you've got something true. Does it bother me that Matthew pulled out those four dudes so he could uh, get to three times 14? Not at all. Matthew believes this is true. And the reason why I share this, maybe you all don't struggle like I do, but I have had dear ones who have just, their faith has just been crushed. And I think it's because you've been taught a wrong view of what it means to believe in the Scripture's authority and inspiration. He was not writing objective facts for a textbook. He was taking inspired holy traditions, which he firmly believed in, and shaping them in a way to communicate the gospel. Well, the last doctrine that Matthew's genealogy teaches is, is a doctrine of women. Uh, most of uh, genealogies from this period were lists of men's names. And you remember what you're trying to do in a genealogy typically is, is show the the purity, well, the ethnic purity of the person that you're writing about. And so if you included women, you would probably use Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel because they were the virtuous women in, in Israel. It's not who Matthew chooses. 
What is he trying to teach us? Well, the first woman is Tamar. And her story is found in Genesis 38. It's kind of a long story. It's, it's, it's a sad story. It's worth reading. She's a Canaanite. She marries Judah's son. The son dies. The Torah said that if a son died, then the, the brother had to marry so that the family name could keep going. Judah refuses to give the son to Tamar. And so that leaves Tamar as an outcast with no means of supporting herself. And so she dresses up as a prostitute uh, and sleeps with her father-in-law, Judah, produces a son for her dead husband. And when he's done, he says, by the way, give me your staff. Judah comes back after her saying that she is a, a harlot and says, I'm going to burn you to death. And then Tamar says, uh, do you know anything about this staff, sir? And he says, I'm a sinner. You're more righteous than I am. That's one of the grandmothers of Jesus. Second woman is Rahab. You find her story in Judges chapter 2 and 6. And she is also a prostitute living in the city of Jericho in the time of Joshua. In, in that period, if you, if you were not married, you had very few ways to make a living. I'm sure she didn't choose this because she enjoyed it. She had no other way to survive. And when the Israelites prepared to invade the land of Canaan, they sent spies to Jericho. And Rahab protects the spies because she fears the God of Israel. She becomes revered. The third woman's Ruth. We spent some time with her this summer. She's a Moabite woman. She gives up her land and her people to support her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi. And she figures out an ingenious way to save Naomi, marries Naomi's kinsman, Boaz. They have a son, Obed, who becomes the grandfather of David. The fourth woman is Bathsheba. We read her story in 2 Samuel 11. She's married to Uriah the Hittite, one of David's soldiers. David rapes her while Uriah is at the front lines. She becomes pregnant. David uh, kills her husband. The baby conceived in the rape dies. Uh, but Bathsheba has another son whose name is Solomon. The final woman is, of course, Mary, who becomes pregnant before her marriage to Joseph, but while betrothed to him in a legally binding relationship. Now, what is Matthew trying to teach us He's obviously very consciously chosen these women to be in Jesus' family tree. Well, the oldest interpretation and the most common interpretation goes back to the 4th century church father, Jerome, is that the, woman are, the women are sinners, except Mary, of course, and so the message is that God forgives sin and welcomes sinners into his family. But if you think about that for a minute, that is really a bad reading of the text. Because there are a lot of men in this story that are sinners. It's not just the women. And also, none of the biblical stories present the women as sinners. The whole point of the Tamar story is Judah's deception, not hers. Rahab is revered for her great faith. Ruth did nothing morally wrong. 
And do you really want to gaslight Bathsheba and say that she is the sinner? I don't think so. Several of the women are Gentiles. And so Matthew may have included them to remind us that Jesus is creating a family that's welcome to, to everyone. But I, I think that the, the, the main reason why these women are in Jesus' family tree is to teach us how God views women. And, uh, Amy Jill Levine, a scholar um, of the Old Testament, she shows that these five women are actually examples of a higher righteousness. Tamar acts when Judah refuses to act justly. Rahab risks her life to worship the God of Israel. Bathsheba's husband was faithful while David was not. And Ruth had faith when Naomi did not. Mary said yes when God asked her to carry the Christ child. So these women uh, are examples of, of righteousness. They're also not a part of traditional family relationships. Did you notice that? None of them are, are married. They are separate, uh, widowed, prostitutes. And yet they play a central role in God's plan. So marriage which is very, very important, is not a prerequisite for righteousness. Uh, Beverly Gaventa, another New Testament scholar, points out that each of these women resists the status quo. Tamar resists Judah's cruelty. Rahab risks her own life to serve the God of Israel. Ruth risks her reputation and her life to take initiative with Boaz. Bathsheba risks everything to send a message to the king to say that she's pregnant, not knowing the outcome of her future. And Beverly Gaventa says this of these women, Alfred, buddy, I love you. I, I want to make a point here, so just kind of be quiet while I finish, okay? Now, this story is okay, okay. It's just, I know, I know. I do love you, and I want you here. But I need you, if you've got to have a moment, maybe, maybe Luke could take you in the back and minister to you a little bit. But I just want you to be quiet while I finish. Okay. Thank you, brother. Yeah. So Beverly Gaventa says, none of these women fits with the way things are supposed to be. Each of the women is presented as threatening the status quo in some way. And each in turn is threatened. Each also is shown to be part of the divine plan. Well, and to state one more obvious example, the women in the list of Jesus' grandparents are there to remind us that it takes both men and women to bring Jesus to the world. So this uh, genealogy, I think, sketches out a vision for the role of women in the family of God. Men and women together share the gospel work of bringing Jesus into the world. Exceptional women model gospel faithfulness just as exceptional men do. Unmarried women in non-traditional roles carry out the purposes of God just as married women do. 
The stories of women are as important as the stories of men in the great story of God. And godly women must sometimes resist the status quo as a way of furthering God's purposes in the world. Matthew's long list of names may seem boring at first. but Matthew teaches doctrine with the Jesus family tree. God is sovereign. We can trust scripture. And women are full participants in the mission of God. Let's pray. Lord, please meet us at the table now. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your heart.